FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for joining us for today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, here where we are in the northern part of Georgia, it is a gorgeous spring day right now. It's sunny. The temperatures are warming up. I, I wish I could say that the news about the state is also looking good, but it's pretty grim. And we're going to be talking about that with our panelists for today, everybody on the telephone because we're doing our shows by remote during this uh, emergency. Uh, so let me welcome uh, from his home, uh, Jim Galloway. He, of course, is the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC, and he oversees the Political Insider blog. Jim, how are you doing? We're doing great out here. Like you said, it's a beautiful day. It's, kind of, it's, a, it's a weird contrast between the outdoors and, and the news inside. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Patricia Murphy is with us. Patricia, of course, is syndicated columnist for Roll Call. She's a veteran of Capitol Hill, having worked for Senators Max Cleland and Sam Nunn. And now, I'm so proud to be able to say, has been reporting on uh, the legislature for GPB's Lawmakers show. Uh, Patricia, I guess with the legislature out of commission for the time being, and you... Having a couple of kids at home, your work on uh, on reporting, at least for us, is pretty limited right now. Yes, I'm doing a deep dive into homeschool issues and education matters for first graders, and I'm learning a lot. That's all I can <laughs> say. Mom Academy is in session. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we're welcoming to Political Rewind for the very first time, Charlie Hazlett. Charlie is a uh, former reporter for the Atlanta Journal. Back in his younger days, he went on to have a career in public relations. But now he is uh, the author of a blog called Trouble in God's Country. Charlie, uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's safe to say that the focus of your blog is primarily on health care issues in rural Georgia, but you certainly take on wider economic issues as well. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Uh, I would reverse that. First of all, let me say thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, it's it's really a, a broader look at the, as I describe it, the costs and consequences of the of the of the, the death of rural Georgia. Um, that might be yeah. might have been a little hyperbolic. Uh, now I'm not so sure, but um, it started with health and has certainly expanded into economics and education and politics and other subjects. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons we're very happy to have you here today is we do want to get to a conversation about what's happening with coronavirus in rural Georgia. But, but let's start with an overview of where things stand in the state as of this morning. Uh, I'm going to read very directly from a front page uh, right through about the virus by Alan Judd in the AJC. I'll read just a couple of paragraphs to set us up. Here's what uh, Judd writes. A sharp escalation in coronavirus deaths and illnesses signals that Georgia is entering a dangerous new phase of the outbreak. State officials said Thursday that 10 Georgians have died from COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus, an increase of six since the previous day. 
In addition, the state medical examiner's office said it is investigating five other deaths that may be linked to the pandemic. Meanwhile, the number of COVID-19 cases in Georgia confirmed by laboratory tests increased to 297, nearly 50 percent more than Wednesday's total. More worrisome, however, is the death rate in Georgia among those with confirmed cases, nearly 3.5 percent. Another story that accompanies uh, that news is the fact that um, requests for unemployment compensation went up by 400 percent in the past week alone. Meanwhile, um, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms here in Atlanta has uh, decided to close all in-person restaurants in the city, which impacts about 3,000 establishments and the livelihood of some 100,000 people who work in the restaurants. He also ordered closed bars, nightclubs, private social clubs, fitness centers, gyms, movie theaters, bowling alleys, and arcades. Restaurants, she said, are certainly allowed to continue offering carryout service. Um, So that's just a very brief overview of where we stand right now. But Jim, there is no question that what people have been anticipating, which is coronavirus was going to make an escalating impact on our lives, is really upon us now. Right. You've got, um, uh, uh, as you mentioned, you've got Mayor Bottoms uh, uh, ordering uh, businesses in in a shutdown. Right now I'm looking at a uh, a, uh, a a a tweet just put out by uh, by the by uh, Joe Seconder. He's the uh, uh, councilman on uh, at the city of for the city of Dunwoody. They've they've they have now closed dine-in bars and restaurants as well. So uh, Patricia, as we watch this all unfold, um, we had Governor Kemp as recently as his news conference late yesterday afternoon. Uh, calling people to take voluntary measures, pe- people to, you know, the things that we've all heard about by now, maintain a safe social distance, uh, six feet from other people as you go about your business, be careful about going out too often, come home, wash your hands, all that sort of thing. But while other states uh, and California just overnight shutting down everything, saying people, that Governor Newsom saying stay home, don't go out, uh, the same thing happening in New York to, to a similar extent. And yet Governor Kemp believes at this point it still should be a matter of voluntary actions. His office says that that's the advice they're getting from CDC. Uh, but I'm wondering how we uh, understand that in the context of the escalation of the virus here. Well, Governor Kemp has said that he feels like if he enacts, because he's gotten asked about this at press conferences um, recently, and he said if he enacts things like mandatory closures, mandatory businesses, um, rather than these recommendations, um, he does not know if there would be buy-in from the public. He wants to make sure that the public is bought in and trusting his advice, um, and that so far he's not seeing the evidence or hearing the evidence um, that he should do more. Um, it leads to a question of what does Gavin Newsom in California know that we don't know or vice versa. And so when you have a federal system that leaves so much of this up to the states right now, and then some states like Georgia leave it up to local authorities, um, and then they in turn look to the federal government for 
direction, it leads to this very unusual dynamic and a, and a really strange and sometimes disturbing patchwork of either 56% of our citizens will get it, as the governor of California believes, or it's up to you, make, you know, be responsible. And um, I have to say the problem with leaving it up to people being responsible is that some people are not responsible. <laughs> and so I really, yeah. I remain very disturbed by the, by the choice of Senator Beach uh, in the Georgia State Senate to go into the Capitol when he had been tested for coronavirus and did not yet have the test results. So when people are making individual decisions, some of those decisions will end up hurting people. Um, and uh, I think that's why there's some confusion among a lot of people. How serious is it? Um, we don't know until we have testing widespread, we won't know. And so that's the challenge the governor has. Yeah, I, uh, Charlie, um, you know, I, I think Patricia makes an interesting point. There, there is a certain amount of confusion about, not just here in Georgia, but across the country in some places, about just how seriously our officials and members of the public are taking the coronavirus. I, I'll cite as an example the fact that the AJC has a front-page story today. It's an interview with Joe Rogers, who is uh, the uh, uh, chief at, uh, you know, the, of, at Joe Rogers Jr., of course, who oversees Waffle House. Rogers is, in this article, say, says... This is all overblown. We don't need to be shutting down restaurants. All we really need to do is maintain, figure out a way to uh, trust that people will maintain social distance when they come into a Waffle House. Um, And so you've got these mixed messages coming from important people in the business community and perhaps in in official life as well, Charlie. Uh, Clearly that's true to... to, And life without Waffle House is frankly a little difficult to, to comprehend, but, um, but I, 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 I do wonder about uh, the wisdom of what Mr. Rogers is saying. To go back to Patricia's point and the position that the governor has taken for a minute, um, I, I, I can understand it because, um, uh, frankly, his political base in rural Georgia is by, I think, any measure slower to buy into this than, than, than Metro Atlanta is. And he, you know, I can understand the politics of him waiting on that a little bit the, and giving them time to catch up. And, I, and based on the conversations and email exchanges that I've had with people um, uh, around the state, I think that's happening. But the problem with it is that he's allowing that curve in rural Georgia to, to rise up. And, and that's, that's likely to happen. We're already seeing that in Albany and probably in some other areas um, uh, where people probably have not taken as much care as they have. And the hospital systems are already, and the healthcare systems are already being um, stressed uh, very heavily. Uh, so you know, it's uh, I, on the one hand, I can I can understand a politician's desire, un, very understandable desire, to um, uh, to let the public will sort of build toward a difficult decision like this. Uh, but on the other, uh, it's going to come at a price, and uh, and I'm I'm like Patricia, I'm I'm wondering what Gavin Newsom knows that 
that Brian Kemp does not. Um, uh, and and uh, my my hunch is he'll get there sooner rather than later, uh, and and it's time. Jim, you want to jump in? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, one of the one one of the uh, good parts about doing this from home is that I can keep uh, keep my computer screen up and and running. And uh, I've got a. I'm looking at a Facebook post from Rusty Paul, the the mayor of Sandy Springs, who has called a special meeting of his city council at 1 p.m. for 1 p.m. today to consider an ordinance closing restaurants and other eating establishments to inside dining. Uh, that's a, that's a. So, it's, um, it's, 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 go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it, it, it's all well and good to have the mayor of Atlanta, the mayor of Sandy Springs take these actions, but people are still moving to some extent freely uh, between city lines. And, and that's why in the long run, don't you really, Jim, uh, uh, imagine that it's up to a governor to make these to take these steps? For it, the eventually, yes, I think. Yeah, yeah eventually, I think you're right. I, I, I think that's going to happen. I, I'm taking Charlie's point. Uh, that that curve is rising uh, in in parts of Georgia that just can't handle any kind of increase in the curve. Uh, uh, yeah. I was out uh, on Monday. Go ahead, Jim. On, 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 on Monday, I was out to Crawfordville, uh, Tolliver County, uh, where they have a single clinic uh, open Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's their health care. That's that's what's that's what's going to stand between them and the coronavirus, and that's not enough. Yeah, I want to get to rural Georgia in just a minute, but I, let me continue on this path about uh, um, the kind of mixed messages that are going out there. Again, Joe Rogers Jr., the chairman of Waffle House, here's what he told the AJC. He is, quote, American leaders have to lead people through ruinous times, but leaders don't lead people to ruin. He's warning, and he's probably right about this, that many large and small businesses may not survive. He also went on to say that he was uh, uh, very unhappy about what he called a doom and gloom message from the White House. Uh, and, and, and he doesn't really criticize President Trump. He says any leader in the world that was dealt this hand might not have played it any better than the president did, but we have to play it better going forward. You know, Patricia, to some extent, this is in keeping with research that just came out of uh, Pew Research, in which it showed that some 70-plus percent of the uh, respondents to their survey, uh, Republicans, that is, uh, believe that the media has either vastly or to some extent overplayed uh, this crisis. And, and that's a troubling figure, Patricia. Well, it's a troubling figure because you want people to be relying on science, not just the media. And the me listen, if you watch any cable news all day long, you are going to feel a disproportionate um, intake of terrible news about the coronavirus. If you leave your TV, your world seems pretty normal. So somewhere in there, you need the voice of leaders uh, making clear decisions. Um, and the problem I think that we're about to face very, very quickly is that people don't know how to get a test. They don't know if they have coronavirus. They don't know if their neighbor does. They don't know when you can transmit it. There's so many unknowns about this. They know if they're about to lose their job. They know they just lost their job. So the known knowns that people are about to experience are going to be very real and very painful. And then how, how can you trust 
this other information that you don't know from a leader that you either do or don't trust. Republicans trust President Trump. It's very clear in every poll. Democrats do not. Um, and so that's the that's where we find ourselves. I hate to see a political dynamic come into this, but I think the trust in your leaders and the trust in your information becomes so important when people are at being asked to make sacrifices like this. Um, and yeah, so yeah. you uh, just have to hope that the society holds together uh, and starts to trust each other. Uh, Patricia, speaking of that, and let me go back to something uh, that you mentioned just a few minutes ago, and that's there's been quite an uproar over the fact that Alpharetta Senator Brandon Beach did, in fact, attend the special session of the legislature on Monday in which they met. Supposedly, they were going to meet for like very briefly to give the governor the emergency powers he'd asked for. Instead, they had a long debate that lasted almost eight hours that kept people down at the Capitol Beach later tested positive for COVID-19. And uh, there's a lot of anger uh, among his colleagues and the governor himself, who reprimanded him on a local radio show in Atlanta just yesterday, that Beach would uh, uh, expose people to this. Uh, uh, Patricia Terry Anulowitz, a representative uh, from Smyrna, who's a frequent panelist on our show, was especially harsh. She called it an act of hubris on his part. She said she was appalled that there were teenage pages in the state Senate that day. Uh, you know, this, this tells us uh, just how uh, concerned people are about being exposed to the virus, Patricia. Well, and also uh, Senator Beach had already taken a coronavirus test. I think that's why yeah. people are so upset. And the week prior, I can tell you, having covered, covered all of this, the only conversation in the Capitol was about coronavirus. Uh, by the time we got to crossover day on Thursday, um, the Senate recessed at six o'clock, kind of, I think, out of concern of how much longer can we all stay in this room together. Um, and there were discussions. The worry was that not only are members of the House and Senate disproportionately older and, and literally just in more, more, uh, more vulnerable, um, they would then disperse to every corner of the state and perhaps take this back with them. Um, there was no other conversation but that about coronavirus, the governor urging people, please stay home if you feel sick. He, by then, schools had been dismissed. Businesses were closing. Um, and so it's not that it wasn't on people's minds or that these messages weren't getting out. And I think that's the real anger um, about the decision to come into the Capitol after you'd already taken a coronavirus test to vote on coronavirus emergency powers. Um, there are yeah. people in that chamber with special needs children, mem family members in hospice. You just can't expose them to that um, in good conscience. And that's the anger. Jim? Yeah, yeah it, it's it, look. I, I I know I know. There's a lot of anger uh, heading out uh, Brandon Beach's way, but but I, I do want to emphasize that he wasn't the the the, the sole violator here. Uh, you had no. the entire Senate Republican leadership agreed to keep on with business as usual. They kept their teenage to pay pages uh in 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 the capitol uh I, I, on crossover day you had you had uh senators bringing their small children in uh into it and and i'd also like to point out that this is kind of the same debate is happening up in dc with congress because again you have you have uh some 535 older people uh who uh 
who are congregating together and are going to eventually disperse all over the country. Yeah, I mean, I, that's absolutely true. And we've seen um, leadership on the Hill uh, refuse to shut things down or to try to find alternative ways of getting their business done. So I think that's a really good point. Let me, by the way, we're going to move on to the rural, uh, uh, what's happening in rural Georgia in just a sec. But let me, I just got a uh, email from Cody Hall, who's the governor's press secretary, in response to my question about why the governor has decided not to take mandatory action. I'll read it to you directly. We're acting on advice from CDC, the Department of Public Health, and various medical experts. These actions do not come without serious consequences, meaning shutting things down. Ohio has seen their unemployment numbers skyrocket, for example. These are not easy decisions. Charlie, what's interesting about that, and I understand it, you know, the economy is in serious jeopardy here. And what's interesting about that, the Pew study that I mentioned just a few minutes ago, one of the other interesting findings of it is that uh, people are, by a fairly wide margin, more concerned about the economy and what's going to happen to the economy than they are about the disease itself. And and I think the governor's uh, the response is a, a reflection of just that, Charlie. Uh, I, I suspect you're right, uh, but I also suspect that's going to change. And uh, as as more polling is done, as as folks like Jim and Patricia and and myself continue talking to folks, I think you'll see a shift in the mood. I saw it this week um, when I was talking to people in rural Georgia starting on Monday and Tuesday, and then yesterday I began calling them back and saying, is it changing? And universally the answer was yes, um, that, that they were seeing day-to-day changes in behavior and in attitude, still a little slow, but but getting there to, to go back to the previous part of that conversation, of the conversation about the legislature and in, in, in Congress, it's been a while since I was at the Capitol or at, in, uh, as a reporter or in my PR days. But under the best of circumstances, during the session, you've got people down there with the flu and colds and everything else. It's a petri dish, um, and and the the habits obviously haven't changed. But there's something perverse in the fact that our political leadership may become a major vector for the plague of our times um, uh, as, as it spreads there and, in, and undoubtedly in Washington. Um, so, All right, yeah, let's, this, go ahead, sorry. Finish, Charlie. No, no please finish your thought. No, that, that was... Okay, let me do... Uh, I apologize that we sometimes step on each other. That's what happens when we're trying to communicate just by phone. I, I hope you'll all forgive us out there as you're listening to the show. And to you panelists, I, I don't mean to cut you short. Let's do this. Uh, Charlie, you're setting us up beautifully for what I'd like to talk about in the next segment of the show, which is your reporting on how the coronavirus is making an impact on rural Georgia. But before we do that, why don't we get in our first break of the show? You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Patricia Murphy, Jim Galloway, and Charlie Hazlett uh, join us as we continue producing Political Rewind uh, by telephone. Uh, I'm at my home in uh, Greater Decatur. Uh, Patricia Murphy, Jim Galloway, and Charlie, I assume, are all in their houses as well this morning. Charlie Hazlett, uh, first time on the show, is the author of The Trouble in God's Country blog. And Charlie, I'm really happy that you're here because we need to spend more time talking about what's happening in rural Georgia with coronavirus. Uh, Clearly, we've seen the preponderance of cases in the metro area, but uh, you're starting to track it even more so in rural Georgia. And I wonder, you you have a brand new uh, blog that you've posted, and I'm hopeful, uh, Tom Faust, maybe we can put up a link to it. Uh, you say you say this, COVID-19 may be a perfect storm for rural Georgia. You say that, that it's a new plague that stirs up uh, problems that face rural Georgia. So f- first of all, what does that mean? What In what ways is this a perfect storm for rural Georgia? Well, uh, rural Georgia, uh, as Jim pointed out in his column on Monday, uh, or, uh, was, um, or Tuesday rather, um, is already very vulnerable. It, it, the population is older. It is sicker. Um, uh, frankly, it's less well-educated. Um, and all of those things combine to put um, a, a bullseye on rural, rural Georgia's back where, uh, where any uh, health issue is concerned, especially one like this. Um, uh, and you add to that that you've got a very frail um, uh, healthcare system out there. We've, we're, what, 15 years into watching rural hospitals shut down, um, and we are, uh, and the, the remaining uh, larger hospitals that are there are having to, to shoulder that load, and, and we're already seeing the stress of that, as we've mentioned in Albany and no doubt in other areas. And then you, you there are other things to add to that. Um, uh, the, you touched on this where the, where the political piece of it is concerned. Uh, that area of the state is overwhelmingly Republican, the rural Georgia, especially well, rural Georgia period, but probably particularly from the Natline South. Um, and the Pew Research and, frankly, my own conversations with folks in that part of the state uh, support this, uh, are slower to buy into the notion that, that this is a, a, a serious uh, health issue, and for that have been a little slower, maybe a lot slower, to change their uh, their behavior. Uh, so you you know you you've got that that reluctance to flatten the curve, as it were. And then there are a couple of other things that I pointed out in the blog that I think are are, are pertinent. And you know one is that um, religion and and crime sort of conspire to to add to the problems. Um, the that area of the state is also highly religious. Um, folks in rural Georgia are more more uh, church-going probably than, than in metro Atlanta. Um, uh, there's actually data to support that. It's a little old, but there's some out there that supports that. Um, and uh, and it's the prison belt. It's both the Bible belt and the prison yeah, belt. Yeah, I want to, Charlie, let, Go ahead. Yeah, let me, if you don't mind, I, I apologize for interrupting you, but I want to, in a moment, in fact— Talk about an area that we have not spent much time on, and you do in your blog, which is talk about what's happening in prisons um, and and in rural Georgia particularly. But before we get there, Jim, I know you want to weigh in on some of what Charlie's already said. 
No, I think. Look, I think the the the, the religious aspect is 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 actually very important in uh, and and I know I know I have talked to people who have said out in rural Georgia there are ch- uh, churches that are giving giving up on 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 Sunday meetings, but uh, I know a whole lot of churches have not, and and they're and they're uh, they're keeping uh, they're keeping the uh, uh, kind of uh, it's it's look it's. Uh, uh, it, it, you still got a lot of people who are counting on the age of miracles uh, back uh, d- down there, uh, and I and I, I don't say that I don't say that belittlingly uh, or or lightly. So um, let's talk. the The center of this has been uh, uh, down there. I think I'm safe to say, Charlie uh, Doherty County and Albany. Um, Phoebe Putney Health Center, which is, I think, the major, it is the major health institution for the for that area, isn't it, Charlie? It is, and just as a matter of full disclosure, in my PR days, I did a, a good bit of work uh, for them uh, over a period of several years. It's been a decade probably since I even yeah. talked to anybody there, but, I, but just to acknowledge that. But yes, um, I mean, it's a matter of objective fact that um, that's the largest health system uh, in Southwest Georgia. Uh, it's the, uh, they, uh, in addition to the hospital there in Albany, they own uh, Sumter, what used to be Sumter Regional in Americas, and I think a couple of other smaller rural hospitals. Um, so, yeah. If- so, so let's talk about what, yeah, let's talk about what they've found. As of noon Thursday, this is coming from the hospital itself, as of noon yesterday, these were all the Phoebe-related COVID-19 test results. A total of 43 positive results, four deaths from COVID-19. Uh, positive patients in Phoebe Putney Memorial Hospital, 19. Total positive patients now at home, 21. Inpatients awaiting test results, 58 Inpatients awaiting uh, test results. That's that's at the hospital itself. Five at the Sumter Medical Center, um, and uh, uh, here's a kind of a staggering figure, Patricia. Total patients awaiting test results at home, four hundred twenty-four. And and what's interesting about that, Patricia, is we're aware of that. We know that there's a shortage of test kits. So who knows how many more might be getting tested. If there were, if they were more broadly available, and if the screening for who gets a test and who doesn't didn't have to be quite so tight. Yeah, I think that the lack of widespread testing availability um, will be the original sin of this entire situation. Without knowing who has it, you can't know who is spreading it. Um, you can't know who should and should not be working with patients. Um, multiple members of the staff of Phoebe Putney now have tested positive. Um, and what I found, yeah, six? So con- yes, have already tested positive. Um, and what I found so concerning about the hospital is that of their 38 ICU beds, 24 are coronavirus patients or people exhibiting those symptoms. And so these hospitals in rural Georgia are already stretched so thin and so to have so many of the resources directed at this situation um, with really no way to know how bad it really is because so many people, tests have not come in, um, and people even who are there, they don't know if they have it. Uh, it's, it's so concerning for these hospitals 
and the director of the hospital um, was in the Albany Herald this morning uh, saying that they have one to two days of supplies at some point. They are just so on the edge. Um, and so that's, I think, where our concern has to lie right now are these rural hospitals um, and rural health systems uh, and do everything we can to flood them with resources so that they can respond to this, um, you know, regardless of anybody's politics or religious affiliations, it, it is a crisis. Um, and I think that's uh, got to be on people's minds. Um, and uh, the, the last thing I want to say is I know the governor is in a, a really tough spot here, um, making a lot of tough choices. Um, and this is where, though, I think the attention has to go or, or people who just don't have the resources to get through this without some help. Uh, Charlie, Charlie, if if, if I could uh, uh, ask you a question here, and maybe Patricia, sure. if if you know the answer, to jump in, uh, <clears throat> the nexus of of the situation in Doherty County was it was was a funeral, was it not a funeral service? That's what I'm told. Um, I, I don't think I've seen that in print, but I have been told that by um, a, a good friend in Albany, and I think that the funeral was actually in in Mitchell County, down I- in Pell. Yeah, I have seen it in print. I believe there were two funerals, and one of the attendees um, was the gentleman in Cartersville who has since passed away. Um, and so the the sort of these, these larger gatherings of multiple people um, has we know is how this can spread more easily. And I think that's the concern um, with with large gatherings, even very important ones that you want to continue to have. Um, that's that's where a, a big concern lies. Charlie, uh, Patricia referred to it already, but I don't think it hurts to read a direct quote from the head of uh, Phoebe Putney Health System, uh, Scott Steiner. Here's what he said about the supply issue. Every day we know exactly how many units of each of the critical supplies we have. We know our daily usage rate. We know how many days on hand we have left. We've gotten down as low as a day or two worth of supplies on some vital equipment. Thankfully, we've managed to avoid running out, but it takes constant work literally hour by hour. We can't just order from one of our normal suppliers and expect a truck to show up the next day. I think hearing him say that uh, makes it uh, the crisis even more vivid, Charlie. Oh, I, I think it does. And, and the, the fact that, that the hospital management is, is being so, so, so vocal and so transparent about it um, also says something about the level of, of anxiety and crisis down there. Um, if, if they begin literally running out of supplies, um, that ripples uh, throughout the hospital, into the operating rooms, into the ER. Um, and, 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 and at that point, you know, the, the horse didn't just out of the barn, the barn's falling down. And, um, uh, and it, it will take a lot to put it back together. So, Charlie uh, and Patricia and Jim, you're more than welcome to weigh on this as, uh, in on this as well because you may have more information than I do. But, Charlie, let me start with you. Uh, when the legislature passed the supplemental budget, uh, they included, I think, $5 million. I don't know if that came from the Rainy Day Fund, frankly, or if it's new, bu- new uh, uh, money. But they did include $5 million for, specifically for rural health care. 
I don't quite know what $5 million means. In the, I mean, obviously, any money helps, but I don't know what that money specifically might be earmarked for. Charlie, have you looked at that? And, and what kind of value will that $5 million have in areas of the state that are so underserved right now? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a drop in the bucket. I mean, it's, it's almost, and I was not, a, not really aware of that or had not focused on it until you just write, raised the question. Um, but it, it's, we're what? Ten years into what should have been a Medicaid expansion, we have allowed billions upon billions of dollars paid for by Georgia taxpayers that would have supported that Medicaid expansion and kept some of those rural hospitals open and strengthened some of the larger hospitals uh, all throughout the state, go to Washington and not come back. We've done a lot of good for folks in other states, and now the legislature is going to put $5 million into it. Um, it it's, it's, I'm sorry, it's just way too little, way too late. It's, it's a joke. Patricia? So along with that $5 million, and this is part of this year's emergency supplemental for 2020 spending, um, there had earlier been a plan uh, in place to cut funding for county health departments. And as the coronavirus conversation started happening, um, the House made the decision, the Senate agreed to it, to return those county health departments to full funding. Um, and then those were out of the regular spending funds. On top of that is the $100 million for, uh, from the rainy day fund that the governor requested at the very end of the session. Um, but again, these are um, in counties where there are, some, in, in some cases, no doctors, so, uh, let alone no hospital. Yeah. So it is, um, to Charlie's point, and he certainly knows better um, than any of us, I think, uh, these are you know, you're, it's sort of, you know, maybe a sprinkle after a drought. This is, these are places that are deeply in need of, of wraparound services, um, let alone emergency funds. Um, I was glad to see that they did plus up that money and certainly weren't making cuts, but um, it's a really dire situation in some parts of the state for health funding of all kinds. And in, when people are healthy, you don't really notice it. When multiple people get sick at the same time, you really start to feel it in a, in a way that's very, uh, very painful. Uh, um, you know, Bill, we, we've seen this uh, uh, in, in Washington. We've seen a real hairpin turn uh, in, in the Republican camp on things like direct payments to, to, to people, uh, to, 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 to workers across the nation, uh, about, uh, about bailouts, essentially, of very, very large industries. But the one thing that that that, that I, I've noticed, or I, I, I that I haven't heard, is I haven't heard in the state capitol or around the state capitol, and I'd, I'd I'd like to draw in Patricia on this. I haven't heard any talk about reviewing the decision not to expand Medicaid. Patricia, have you heard anything that topic at all, being raised at all? Uh, no, <laughs> I think that is a big, broad structural conversation. And right now it is triage. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure that there would be a conversation to revisit that decision once this is all passed, but it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's too late in some cases to do anything about it right now, especially with the legislature not even in session. Um, but certainly as we see people start to lose their jobs, 
as they lose their health insurance along with that, you know, that's when the economic crisis can start to really spiral into a health crisis on top of the triage that we're doing. Um, and so, no, we're, again, they were talking small bore, $5 million plus up, not, hey, whatever happened to Medicare for all? <laughs> you know, I mean, it is not, that is just not part of the conversation right now. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, Kelly Leffler is making uh, national news uh, this morning, along with several of her Senate colleagues. Um, and it's not positive for her or her campaign. We'll talk about that when we get back. This is Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, on I believe it was January 24th, uh, Kelly Leffler and her fellow senators, I think maybe Republican senators, although I'm not certain it was only Republicans, uh, attended a private briefing on uh, what uh, coronavirus, uh, uh, what to expect, what to anticipate in the weeks and months ahead on that. ProPublica, which is a nonprofit uh, national news organization, uh, reported a story that's being picked up broadly by news organizations around the country that in the aftermath of that meeting, Kelly Leffler uh, and others, Diane Feinstein from California, uh, Richard Burr, head of the Intelligence Committee, uh, all sold uh, big chunks of stock. In Leffler's case, somewhere more than $1.3 million and perhaps much more than that. Uh, and then sold those stocks, but then bought some stock in a company called Citrix, which is a company that provides work-from-home software, uh, and and also in a in Oracle, which which has uh, uh, similar services. This is a you know, Jim, whether this is illegal or not, it is one of the one of the prices you pay when you come into the Senate as the richest person in the Senate while this crisis is gripping the country. Right. And we've already, and, and, and look, even before anybody had heard of the coronavirus uh, back in December, everybody was pointing out that, that the fact that, that, uh, that uh, Luffler's husband is, is uh, owns a big stake in the company that owns the New York stock exchange was going to put a, a, a good deal of scrutiny on her transactions. Uh, you know, it's it's what I'm what I'm. Uh, David Perdue is 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 kind of in in the same boat. His his situation is a little bit different. He uh, he sold and bought stocks in roughly half and half during that over that same period. Yeah. Uh, and some of his purchases weren't terribly good ones. He bought Disney and Delta Airlines, and both of those stocks mm. have suffered. Uh, uh, Leffler's was was more of a cashing out. Of, of of the system and that's which I think is important now she's now let's let's let us be clear she denies all wrongdoing she says she had followed she has followed very strictly the Senate Ethics Committee guidelines on the on these transactions and and you know to, to charge someone to accuse someone is with insider trading is to accuse someone of a crime so 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 we have to be a little bit careful here what I'm what I'm really interested in is the fact that the the circumstances surrounding Leffler's appointment have have changed so drastically since December. 
uh, the, the stock market was roaring. Uh, Trump was running on 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 that high, and and Republicans were were were, were counting on on the on the on a good economy to 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 pay off in November. That's all changed now, and. If you are wealthy, how you stay wealthy really matters to people like me with 401ks now. Yeah. Um, Patricia, Jim Galloway makes a very important point. Uh, to this extent, uh, to so far rather, I have not – I mean, I know there are people who are going to at some point accuse uh, Leffler of insider trading, whether or not there's a legal basis for that, Raphael Warnock who's running for that same seat, has already sent out a tweet. He says, as the coronavirus pandemic is busy taking lives and livelihoods, Kelly Loeffler has been busy looking out for herself. Profiting off this disaster is unconscionable. Send me to the Senate, and I'll look out for you and your family. I'm sure Doug Collins, if he hasn't weighed in yet on this, will. But, Patricia, the point here is uh, she may have played— Oh, Jim, you have a quote from. Why don't you give us the Doug Collins quote, and then I'll ask uh, Patricia the question I want. Oh yeah, to pose yeah, yeah. Doug is uh, Doug Collins is is pretty darn rough on her. Uh, let me see here. He is. Uh, uh, if I can find it r- real quick here. Well, while you're looking for that, while you're looking for that, Patricia, let me ask you. Um, I, I, you know, she may have done everything by the book here, but. In a campaign that seemed to be steamrollering in terms of the amount of money she's willing to invest in the fact that the, the Republican Senate committee, campaign committee is supporting her, that she has every reason to believe she could win uh, this seat over, say, a Doug Collins, uh, this certainly is the kind of story that can have an impact on, on her campaign, Yes. Yes, and this was always going to be the problem for Kelly Loeffler. Her, the money that she brought into this job um, was both uh, a blessing for her because I think it made her a very attractive appointee for Governor Kemp, um, but also a curse. And when you are a U.S. senator and your husband owns the New York Stock Exchange, you are surrounded by nothing but insider information, frankly. Um, and it is up to each senator, when we talk about doing things by the book, the book does really not exist. These are rules put in place by the Senate, by senators, for senators, um, who want to not go broke while they're in office. Um, so the guidelines are, are very, very loose. It's up to each senator to decide what looks like a conflict of interest and what do I need to do to have my voters trust me? And that's each senator to decide for themselves. Diane Feinstein has her money in a blind trust that traded, um, but she said, I, it's a blind trust. I don't know whatever happens to it. I won't know until I retire. Um, Joe Biden literally never owned a stock while he was in the Senate because that was his pledge, just was to say, to prove I will make no money, <laughs> I'm going to have no holdings. I, I own nothing. Um, so for Senator Leffler, because of her unique situation, I think she it's incumbent upon her, if she wants the trust of Georgians, to do more to divest herself of her holdings um, or to simply say, well, this is done by a third-party manager. I didn't even know about it until three weeks ago, um, which is what she has said. Um, I certainly can't accuse her of insider trading, but the appearance of a conflict is going to dog her throughout her career if she doesn't do more, I think, to put distance between herself and the decisions involving her her wealth. 
Yeah, Jim, Bill, do you have the Doug Collins tweet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's here's what he here's what he wrote. People are losing their jobs, their businesses, their retirements, and even their lives. And Kelly Loeffler is profiting off their pain? Question uh, mark. I'm sickened just thinking about it. So it's going to be a very very uh, uh, a big issue for Loeffler. Bill, Charlie, jump add, in here. If I can add to that, I'm old enough to remember when Sam Nunn went to the Senate and when Jimmy Carter won the presidency and was governor, in fact. And if I'm not mistaken, and Patricia may know this, I think both Carter and Nunn had all of their assets in blind trusts from the day they took office. Um, yeah, that that's the case, and it used to be sort of the, the, it was the, norm. the default, the norm, yes. Yeah, it was the norm. And I'm not sure when it didn't become the norm. The other thing that I'll add to this is that my hunch is that, she, that Kelly Leffler is going to need that work-at-home software before it's all over with. So, oh, <laughs> well, Charlie, that is. I, thank you for that very succinct <laughs> observation, uh, opinion on this. Uh, let me say the Georgia Democratic Party has just sent out its tweet. Tom Faust is tracking this stuff for up. Uh, here's what they say. As Georgia families prepared to make tough decisions like whether to go to work and how to care for their children while schools are closed, Senator Leffler and Senator David Perdue use their Senate positions to profit off a public health crisis. Uh, Jim, I do think, and we're running out of time, but I want to give you a moment at this. I do think you make a very strong point. There is a big difference between uh, Leffler and Purdue. I know there are folks out there who are going to disagree with this, Democrats who want to, you know, paint them with the same brush. But as you point out, uh, you know, Purdue did buy, you know, Disney. He bought uh, Delta stock. You could say that maybe Disney will have some advantages with their new home streaming service. But Delta wasn't exactly a smart buy going into the coronavirus uh, uh, period. No, no, no. But if you believe in the future, you'd be buying it now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, we are we are really out of time uh, for today's political rewind. But first of all, Charlie Hazel, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure having you here. Will you come back and do the show with us again? Would be happy to, and appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Terrific. Uh, Patricia Murphy, I wish you well in the days ahead. Taking care, being the teacher of the week. <laughs> at home with your boys, and I, I hope that you please stay safe, stay comfortable uh, at, at home, and thank you for being with us today, too. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Yes, my husband uh, did math class this morning, so now I'm off to our reading class. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. If anybody asked me to do math class, my children would really be suffering right now. Jim Galloway, you'll be back with me again on Monday show. We're going to have uh, Andy Miller from Georgia Health News and Ariel Hart, your uh, uh, colleague who covers health news, uh, talking a lot more about the health aspects of this on Monday's show. Look forward to that. Uh, Tom Faust, Sam Burmis-Dawes, Jeffy Neiswanger, thank you so much for all you've been doing to keep us going in these difficult times. Please, all of you out there, take care and um, stay safe in these difficult times. I'm Bill Nygut. I'll see you again on Monday.